6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 145 through 150. Well, we have been going through the book of Psalms. In fact, I technically should say the five books of Psalms. Most people don't realize that it's really five books. We tend to treat it as one book. And, uh, and of course, we're finishing the fifth of the five books this evening with just a few left over from our, our uh, uh, reviews. And I can tell you very candidly that of all the 66 books of the Bible that we've explored expositionally, in some respects, this book is the most frustrating. Because, in general, you can take a gospel or one of the prophets or one of the historical books, and by spending a few hours with a, a good collection of commentaries, you can get to the point where you think pretty much you understand the passage. I won't say exhaustively, but you, at least you're, you've got closure on it. You've highlighted the things, that, the controversial aspects, where there's a couple of different prevailing views on some ambiguous things, whatever. But you can get closure. You can get to the point where you feel that you can reasonably, uh, uh, competently uh, present that book to a, study, to a group or something. The book of Psalms defies that because the book of Psalms is not an expositional, uh, expositionally, uh, it doesn't lend itself to exposition uh, easily. Uh, it is really a devotional book. And as you go through the uh, acres of books written about the Psalms, of course, most of what's written is devotional tangents, explorations, um, and what it has meant to various famous people through history and so forth. You can never get your arms around it. Simplistically, the, book, the, the Psalms look pretty direct and simple. Praise God for this and thank you for that. And it's, it's in, a, in, to, in, in one sense, sort of straightforward. And yet, it is just chock full of discoveries and surprises to the one that immerses in it. And so, the proper way to have taken the Psalms is to spend a whole session on each one and really um, savor it digest it, and so forth. But again, it's not really a group effort. It's very much a personal thing. You need to do that for yourself. So what we've really done is we've sort of surfed it. We've gone through and touched on them, highlighted a few things that may not be obvious, um, tried to refrain from uh, belaboring the obvious, um, but um, uh, still, it's a frustrating experience because you never get the feeling of complete closure. It's been full of delights with discoveries here and there, and yet uh, yeah, it's not the kind of a study where you really feel you've mastered it in any way. Uh, 
And not that you, not there isn't, not that there, that's probably true to some extent of every book in the Bible. There's no book in the Bible you can really exhaust because you can take even the small, you take the book of Ruth. I've taught that book probably a hundred times through the last 30 years. And every time I go through, I make a new discovery of something I didn't know before. It's inexhaustible. Of course, the Gospel of John, another example. They often say it's shallow enough for a child to wade in and it's deep enough for an elephant to bathe in. It depends who you are, how deep it goes. It's not as, it looks very simple when you first read it, but then as you get into it, you realize it has depths and subtleties that are literally inexhaustible. Well, so that's probably true of every book in the Bible. But the book of Psalms is probably uh, the collection that becomes most dear to the reader that takes the Bible seriously. People who, who really get into the book of Psalms end up finding it an endearment that is second to none. Many, many of the great people of the past that know their Bible, that have been in the Bible, will put the book of Psalms as number one on their list of, of, of passions and so on. So it's a, it's a difficult book to really try to exposit, if you will. But in any case, we're completing the book by taking the last half a dozen of these. And uh, so let's just jump into Psalm 145. This is the last psalm of the 150 that mentions David as the author. This psalm is also acrostic. That is, each verse starts with a different letter of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, except this one is known because there's a missing letter. In the, if we went through this, you discover that when you get to the nun, which is sort of like the Hebrew, what we call what we call an n, uh, it is missing. That verse, there isn't, you know, it, it seems to be, it's, it's as if a verse has been dropped out, and some scholars suspect that's what it is. But it's interesting, there are other scholars that by the tone of the thing that have studied it deeply, suspect that it was deliberate, that it was intended to communicate that the fullness of praise is incomplete without other voices. Now that can be a rationalization or it can be an insight, depending on your point of view. And F.W. Grant is one of the authors that highlights it, who highlighted that possibility. But again... Since we're not experts in Hebrew, and so much of the structure and the subtleties and the beauty of the Psalms is lost in translation, be that as it may. So, um, okay, this is the last one of David, or at least attributed to David, David's Psalm of Praise. In fact, all these last Psalms are Psalms of Praise. The last five are literally called the, the Hallel's, the Hallelujah Psalms, the Hallelujah Psalms. But in any case, David's Psalm of Praise. I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. You know, it says it all. How, there's no way I can exhaust what that might mean unless I wanted to spend an hour making a sermon on it, which one could easily could. On the other hand, uh, it says it all. Pretty straightforward. The psalmist says, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. No surprise, after all, he's God. But as we go here, we want to continue to remind ourselves, these were intended to be sung in Hebrew. 
So we missed that, of course, the translation, because uh, Hebrew is a very different kind of a language. But uh, at the same time, um, it's not hard for us to grasp the poetry that is uh, embedded in the language. Um, One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. Indeed, isn't that our task? Is not only to praise God, but to teach our children and our children's children to do so. One generation shall praise thy works to another. How tragic it is that our young people, in general, have absolutely no grasp of the Bible. The biblical illiteracy in our culture is astonishing. And and the reason it is so uh, terrible is because we're terrible. How many of us really know our Bible well enough to teach our kids? How many of us really, that may know our Bible, take the effort and the time to really train our kids? I'm not looking for a show of hands, <laughs> but you get what I'm getting, trying to get at here. One generation will praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. And before you get too comfortable, consider how long has it been since you declared God's acts to someone in your family or elsewhere. The promise continues, I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. You know, it's interesting. Many of us know our Bible, may even have some friends where we talk about it a lot and all that. But do we really speak in the sense of honoring God and his majesty? Do we dwell on that or do we take it for granted? I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. And yet, I have to admit that every time I eat something at a dinner or in a, in a snack or something, more often than not, I'm overwhelmed to realize how complex our digestion is. It might sound like a funny thing to talk about, but... but uh, It's amazing as you survey our world, whether it's in the vegetable realm or or lettuce or fruit or that in that realm, or whether it's an animal that's then then prepared for for a feast. The variety of materials that make up what we take in is enormous, and yet our body is able to to sift out those peculiar things it needs. And not just the carbohydrates, not just to make the sugars or the energy, but even the trace elements, the manganese or zinc or whatever, uh, it can select out what it it needs and pass on what it doesn't need. And what a complex chemistry is involved. What a complex system to uh, uh, the body and its marriage to the environment to to be able to... uh, uh, to, to recognize not only is the body incredibly designed, but it's designed, and the environment that it's been put in has been designed in a, an amazing way. And as you look at all that, it's hard not to stand back in awe of the skill of the designer. Not only to design it so it all works, but to maintain it. The hundreds of mathematical ratios that have to be held precisely to one part in several million uh, to make it all continue to stay working, is it's not only designed, it's maintained, and it's astonishing. And how often do we pause, though, to really share that with our friends or whatever? 
I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous work. And boy, they are, you know, it's absolutely bewildering to me that we can live in a culture that insists upon denying that these are wondrous works. A culture that attributes them to random accidents. You know, that's the height of absurdity. That is the denial of what the very definition of information. Information is, according to Shannon, is the surprise value of data. If something comes down the channel that's exactly predictable, it has zero data. The data it is, is how much is it a surprise? If I'm about to alter a number and you know the number I'm going to say is three, that gives you no information. If I say four, oh, it's a surprise that there's some, it, it, can, be, it can be meaningful. They measure information by its non-predictability. Randomness is the absence of information. And... Uh, it means it's the absence of design, and we, in our culture, attribute design to the absence of design. Now, do you think that's a little illogical? It's a definition of illogic. Anyway, let's move on. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. So there's allusion here of God inter intervening in man's history in terrible, the word really is awesome. It doesn't have to mean frightening, as we, tend, we tend, treat terrible as a negative thing. The, the, the English word actually means it's, it, it, it strikes awe. Yes, it can be terror, but it can also be just uh, uh, awe and wonder, in the, in the sense of wonder. Men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness, and shall sing of thy righteousness indeed. Whew. Okay. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. That may ring familiar in the ears because those phrases are all through the Torah, all through the Scripture. The Lord is gracious. Anyone here not know that? But do we dwell on it? Do we really appreciate it? He's full of compassion. You know, it's amazing that we have such a God. Islam does not have such a God. Even in the conception, recognizing it's not really God, but they think it is, or they, they, they act like they do. Uh, the, 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 the Allah of Islam is capricious, unpredictable, one to be feared. You never know what he's going to do. He can do anything, as their literature continues to hammer. That's not the God of the Old Testament. That's not the God of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. The God of the Old Testament delights in making and keeping promises. He's trustworthy. But interestingly enough, not only that, he's full of compassion. We have a compassionate God who is slow to anger. Does he anger? Absolutely. And of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that are bound down. He knows our every need. Every need we might have, he knows before we even ask. But he does help those that call upon him. James, the brother of our Lord, in his letter in the New Testament, points out, you have not because ye ask not. Same 
basic concept in front of us here. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. And uh, thou openest thine, um, <clears throat> thine hand and satisfieth the desire of every living thing. It's interesting as you go into the wild, you see the, the chain of life. God provides them every meat in due season. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. You know, as I think about animals, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, in the millennium, we understand that the lion and the lamb are going to lay down together. Things are going to be different. Of course, the lion and the lamb lay down together now. The lamb is inside the lion, but they're, you know, okay, yeah, right. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. That's quite a sentence. There are many people that doubt that. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. We may not understand them. And holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh, near, unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. Have you called on him lately? Has he answered? He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, and all the wicked will he destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. You know, one of the great doctrines that came out of the Reformation is the, the, the reminding of ourselves that, uh, of the priesthood of believers. In the Old Testament, they accessed God through the high priest. You and I are a kingdom of priests. One of the astonishing things that we take, we, we, we take for granted, but we shouldn't, is that we have direct access to him. And indeed, he can hear us and fulfill us if we will indeed call upon him. Let all flesh bless his, bless his holy name forever and ever. Okay. Psalm 146. Now, this is the first of the last five. And the last five are called the Hallelujah Psalms. And uh, they conclude this hymn book. And uh, the, 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 and all, all five are what they call hallelujah. They begin with praise the Lord. And how do you say praise the Lord in Hebrew? Hallelujah. Hallelujah as an abbreviated form for Yahweh. The Yod Heh Vav And uh, so, uh, so each one of these five start with hallelujah. And they end with hallelujah. And uh, these psalms now will no longer speak of the persecution and suffering. There are no prayers in this group to, cause for, uh, for, uh, for, uh, to call for deliverance from an enemy. All these themes that we've been hearing all through the other uh, 145 psalms in one way or another, in you know, the, the, the persecution or the oppression or the... Uh, the uh, the anguish or the uh, uh, imprecatory, you know, uh, calling down upon vengeance on enemies and, and all that sort of thing. Weeping is past. Joy has now taken hold. And so these are going to have that all in common. They're hallelujah psalms. They are like a crescendo climaxing the 150, uh, 145 that have preceded us. And so... The Hallelujah Psalms. Psalm 106 is also a Hallelujah Psalm back there. Psalms 111, 112, 113 
were called, had hallelujah characteristics. Psalm 135 did. But this group, uh, all these can be called hallelujah psalms, but when they use that in the plural, they're usually referring to 146 through 150, the last five, although that term is also used from 111, 12, and 13 because they have these characteristics. So when someone says, which are the hallelujah psalms, you actually have some choices. But typically, they're pointing to these last five uh, that belong uh, uh, to the uh, last book. And what they are is really, in effect, a short course on worship. These five are sometimes looked upon as a short course upon worship. 146 will focus on a vow of lifetime praise. The psalmist takes a vow of praising God for the rest of his life. 147 focuses on how good and pleasant it is to praise God. When we praise God, we benefit. We benefit. shouldn't surprise us, but most people don't think of that. One of the reasons you praise God is to exalt yourself because it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an exalting or raising up kind of thing. Psalm 148. Focus on having the whole creation join in in our praise. Join, or we should put, join the creation in praise. Everything praises God. The creation does. And that's a challenge to be sensitive to that. 149 is joy, worship joyfully. Worship is not onerous. It is not somber. It is joyful. It's exciting. It's uplifting. And then, of course, the last one is the where, when, and how we worship. And it has the climactic phrase, everything that has breath should praise the Lord. Anybody in here with breath? Then you should be praising the Lord, right? Okay, good. Okay. So uh, now, let's take the first one, 146 from 1 to 4. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord, O my soul. Praise ye the Lord, of course, is hallelujah. While I live, will I praise the Lord? I will sing praise unto my God while I have any being. While I have any existence at all. That's even beyond lifetime. That's also into the afterlife, as we might use the term. The psalmist says, while I live, will I praise the Lord? Boy, we need to do that. It's our highest calling. It's what we were created for. There's nothing we can do that is more uh, has a higher priority in our uh, horizon than praising God. Do we bother? I won't ask for a show of hands, but you might just examine yourself. Do we focus any attention or prioritization on just stopping to praise Him? When we get to the end, we'll make some remarks about worship near the end. But, you know, it's interesting, in reading on this a little bit, it was highlighted to me that there is no such thing as public worship. We talk about public worship, meaning we're going to do it as a group. And, and I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but real worship is a personal thing. You might be in a crowd doing it too, but you're doing it. Real worship is personal. It is private. It is intimate. And it is, it is uh, committed. While I live, will I praise the Lord? I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man in whom there is no help. Sounds like the psalmist was listening to some of our campaign speeches. 
I don't know about you, and I'm not here to, to pick on any particular person, but I think it's a sorry lot, a bunch of them. It's astonishing to me that a culture that's been as blessed as ours has to serve up such a dismal cast of alternatives as we approach our, uh, a critical election in our history. I mean, these are a band of losers. Virtually, not maybe not everyone, but practically. I mean, this, as, as a, a segment of our society, it's discouraging. And, that, and it's in them that our hope is to rest? Hardly. Hardly. We can easily claim this psalm. We do not put our trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. Indeed, indeed, the problems we face are problems that even a hero could not handle. Because the problems facing our, our leadership is really challenging. It would be challenging for really serious statesmen, not the shoddy self-serving politicians that typically uh, line up to exploit the media time they have and so forth. Anyway, put not your trust in princes nor in the son of man in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth and he returneth to his earth and his thoughts perish. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. You know, it's interesting. Don't take for granted the God of Yaakov, the God of Israel, the living God. Most people on the earth do not worship the living God. They create alternatives that they're more comfortable with. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. Indeed, we should be happy that we serve a living God, not a synthetic one, not, not a false God, not a God of deceit and falsehood. We have the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. For his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. Wow. Something to keep in mind. He made everything we know. He made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. That's not trivial. He really did. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Mm -hmm.